Relevant content for our members by our members. This is TMC Connect. Happy Tuesday, everyone. Rich Robinski with the Mortgage Collaborative here once again with the last week in Mortgage Today. We just started broadcasting live and we'll go ahead and get started momentarily. Eddie, you uh, at home in the Atlanta HQ? I am. I am at the home office. The Are you are you dyed in the wool Atlanta sports guy? I forget. Outside of pro football, yes. The Falcons, not a lot to cheer about presently. Uh, that and as a kid, you know, being a diehard University of Georgia fan, following Herschel Walker to the Cowboys, and that's who was on TV. Because for the younger generation, if you did not sell out a game before NFL ticket, you weren't put locally. And since they never really sold out, it was the Cowboys who always wind up. So it's one of those, it's like I followed him and then, it didn't matter. Cowboys were almost the home team to the South back then. That's a good point. If games didn't sell out, I remember some years in Cleveland when the Browns sucked that they, they didn't sell out some games. The game wasn't on TV. No, no. You probably were watching like the Giants. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. No, that's, that's why the Cowboys grew so big. Packers, some of those teams, because Steelers even down here, they were on TV. <laughs> the other people weren't. Good luck. You had to read a sports page or ESPN in the early days. And your Georgia Bulldogs, defending champs, once again loaded for bear this year. So uh, I'm sure you got to be chomping at the bit for that. You know, I, I endured a little bit of some pain, just like the Braves. So I, I understand. Good things come to those those who wait. That's what I keep telling myself as a diehard Indian slash Guardians fan. So <laughs> I get it. I Let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, and uh, as always, uh, strive for interactivity with the show. Any thoughts, comments, questions, feel free to pump it in the chat or the Q&A, and uh, we'll cor- incorporate it into the show. Eddie, <clears throat> the, we got the Fed uh, this week, that uh, later this week, uh, with a press conference that the markets are all kind of waiting on, um, some sell-off to the mortgage bond market. We saw rates go up 30 or fixed rates up in the 6% range and plummet back down into the high fours. And now they've kind of floated back up into the low to the mid fives area on a lot of Fed fear. I think people are anticipating maybe a more hawkish tone from the Fed this Friday. Also in the UK, in Germany last week, we got some hotter than expected inflation numbers that have really affected the US markets and the way people maybe perceive the US inflation numbers coming up, but uh, as it's affected our industry, rates have come up a little bit. I, is our rates in this four and three quarter, five, are rates impacting purchase activity much from where you sit, or is it just the broader climate and is kind of suppressing things more broadly? I, I do believe it's affecting it because I think the first time home buyer in certain situations has been priced out just from a debt to income ratio. They just now have to possibly look for a little bit of a smaller house. I think the biggest thing is more psychological. I think you have a lot of people. Uh, let's call it for what it is. If man, God, let's see. So the average first-time home buyer is around 31. So the last time rates were this high outside of small little tips in 18 that were forgotten and a blip here with the taper tantrum in 13. It's been 15, 16 years since, 17 years since rates were this high. So it's more of a psychological effect. So there's a lot of people that have been homeowners that are around my age that don't understand that 
you know, fives and sixes is not a horrible because at the end of the day, it's payment. I think a lot of people still qualify and you still see it because we see the debt ratios, even with the people with great credit, they just, because for so long, you know, everything works till it doesn't and then it doesn't work anymore. You know, uh, because so long they could say, hey, rates are going to go down because the government did manufacture lower rates. It's, it's, a, it's a truth. They feel like they'll go down and, and why not bet on them? Because, you know, politicians and the government are known to want to get reelected and to try to burden, which I understand as a leader, burden some of the pain and try to make things easier. So they'll do what they can to bring relief. The challenge is if they don't look at it at multiple levels, then they may cause other challenges in the future. But a lot of times it's just treating symptoms instead of getting to the root cause. This is the last week in mortgage today. I'm Rich Swarbinski with the Mortgage Collaborative. This week joined by a longtime member, a guy that's uh, very, very active just in our industry on an advocacy level, a CEO and co-founder of Equity Prime Mortgage, Eddie Perez. And Eddie, uh, really been really fun, man, since you've been a TMC member these last five series, six years, just watching Equity Prime grow. When you guys joined TMC, you guys were like, Six, six, seven hundred million a year. IMB really focused in, in and around Atlanta area. And uh, it's sure. been really watching you guys spread your wings these last few years. Thank you. Thank you for the support. And as we get getting back to the business climate more broadly, it feels like there's a, a lot of just suppressed demand to buy homes, people on the sidelines because of the obvious supply issue. Um, and you know, and it feels like right now it's the market's almost resetting, right? Rates shot up, they came back down, now they're up a little bit. It feels like there's just all so many home buyers anecdotally just on the sideline, and that there's some equation of home price slash value, which is really stabilized in some areas, gone down, and rate. We've chronicled the ups and downs there that bring buyers back in. Is in your mind as a CEO and a leader, is there like a number or a level on that? that home price slash interest rate continuum that you feel uh, could, could kind of kick things and, and kick activity to a new level? I mean, look, if, if, if rates drop, that's the biggest psychological. If that drops, then all of a sudden you'll see people want to rush in because they don't want to miss out. So that'll have the psychological effect. Uh, on the price value, you know, I'm starting to see appraisals actually come in high. I'm starting to see more seller concessions. I'm starting to see offers accepted below price. So I think there's a pinned up demand. Definitely. There's plenty of home buyers. Uh, the demographics are the strongest they've ever been in this country's history, not only by a number, but also by a percentage. The question is, what does the consumer consider value for themselves? You know, what type of payment do they really want to have and what are they comfortable with? Uh, and I think that has to do a lot with optionality too. Somebody can say, hey, renting's more expensive. It is, but the mindset is if I need to go smaller or, you know, you know, get smaller really fast, I can if I'm renting versus if I buy. So, you know, I just think that we need to see a lot more first-time home buyers in the market. And I think a lot of times it's also perception from the standpoint that I think you need people to understand that you can have a starter home and that's okay. It's okay if your first one's a condo or a townhouse. It doesn't have to be, you know, a 3,000 square foot, four bedroom, three and a half bath house. Like, I, I think it's okay 
to start as our generation did with a starter home. That term's almost been lost and it's because people want to skip starter and go right to home two when your final home is usually home three or four, uh, maybe not overall, but where you really sit for a while, especially if you're raising a family. That's a really outstanding perspective. And you're right. I, I think we all see and feel that, that young couples and are kind of skipping past that that first home that when you and I were young, I mean, I remember living in like eight, 900 square feet, brothers, sisters, relatives, like it was, uh, and if you look at the stats, like it's hysterical, like in America, like the size of our lots for residential homes and the size of our homes in general, it's astronomical compared to other countries. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and other it's just different in other countries but you know people have pointed to that as part of like the affordable housing issue in America like the zoning homes are zoned uh and residential parcels and properties are zoned differently in America than they are than they are in other countries i i definitely think some regulations on the the challenge with real estate is it's not just on the, the everybody's like, OK, what can the federal government do? The federal government can only do so much. It then has to go down to the state. Then it has to go down to the municipalities. And then sometimes even certain cities and certain origins really come in. So and some areas just have, to your point, a lot of restrictions and the restrictions really cause the prices to go up because there's only so much that can be built. For example, where I live, there's this petition to to keep it. I forgot what the saying is, but basically the rule is if you don't get an acre of land, you can't build a house on it. That's the minimum standard. Keep keep uh, keep Milton nice or something like that. There's some slogan. I've seen the sign. However, the ironic part is, and, and this is something that probably other people have noticed, it's always the smaller homes that lived there when it was very country or before it was developed. And I get it. They want to remember it like it is. But once areas start developing, it's hard to keep Pandora's box in. And to sit here and say lots have to be a certain size, I can see arguments on both sides. But to your point, it's what causes the price to go up and does prevent more supply to hit the market and, and more of these townhouses type starter homes. It's such an interesting and nuanced issue and one that's really so critical to our industry, this affordable housing issue. You know, the there's just there's not a lot of affordable homes for e even if we were in a healthy supply climate, you know, like going back like three, four years ago, um, supply was not healthy, but it was healthier, but it was still unhealthy at that starter home level. But to your point, it's such a complex issue. You're heavily involved in the advocacy side of our industry. So you see this at a level that most leaders don't. It's not just as easy as the Biden administration or even a state leader waving a magic wand and saying, we need more affordable houses in Atlanta, Georgia or Twinsburg, Ohio. Like it, it's you need to rezone. You need to work with local municipalities. You have resistance for different reasons. It's it's a tough issue. Because as many, many levels. And then any, give us some hope. You're you're as plugged in as anybody. Is there any on the horizon, like anything you're seeing or hearing uh, on the D.C. side or on the advocacy side of our level that um, is coming down the pike? Or I, I know the Biden administration put together in a pretty extensive uh, housing supply plan. It's some interesting stuff in there, some more viable than others, some stuff they were kind of already doing. But um, anything that you've seen 
from that that's started to materialize or uh, any hope for our audience? I mean, the hope is, I mean, it's going to be in about two years. That's the only, it takes about, from what I've heard from all builders, it takes about two years from shoveling the ground till the house is sold and available. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we're in this for a little bit, uh, no different than when, when loans are, are raining in, they're raining in for a few years. It's, it's kind of the same way on the other way, the reverse. I, I think that we'll see a lot more relief by 2024, 2025, I think for the rest of this year. And I think next year it's going to be a tight market. Uh, now, mind you, you got to have some perspective there tight, still going to be 2.1, 2.2 trillion. Which, just to put some perspective, 2018 was like 1.6, 1.7 trillion. So that's still a big boom. The problem is you had back-to-back of like year two and three greatest of all time. So even if there's a 40% drop in production, it seems like it's worse than it is only because now you have to go back to competing for your loans competing for your relationships. And what you have to understand, and what I mean by this is not the actual term, is uh, this is wartime in our industry, but not I declare war, batten down the house fear. Every relationship's a battle. Every originator's a battle. Every loan's a battle. People are out there now hunting a lot more. It's not peacetime when nobody's leaving their organization because loans are raining. People are just trying to hire ops people because loans are raining. That's the difference is wartime and peace. I'm not literally talking in military terms. I'm talking more in, in loan availability terms is you have to battle or you basically don't have to battle. It's very binary. And right now you have to battle for what you have. So you just have to stay very focused and, and very, you know, it, this isn't the time to, as the term says, try to be sexy. It just go out there, execute, provide great service, really try to make the experience better, lean in, ask a lot of questions, and just show that you genuinely care. (laughs) As crazy as that sounds. Probably the best perspective and analysis in the current state of our industry I've heard in a long, long time from somebody that's interviewing people pretty regularly. So uh, very, very well said and frank, but very true. Uh, And that uh, assessment uh, coming from this week's co-host of the last week in mortgage today, Eddie Perez, CEO and co-founder, Equity Prime Mortgage based out of the Atlanta, Georgia area. Eddie, we've talked about inventory now for a good chunk of the first half of the show here. Uh, The home builders in the news uh, a couple different times this past week. Today, we had July new home sales came out. Uh, 511,000 annualized pace in June versus expectations of 575,000. So another miss um, on new home sales. Um, The National Association of Home Builders, we've had their president, Jerry Howard, speak on uh, Rob Chrisman and I show and at our conference, they're screaming from the mountaintops right now, uh, louder than they ever have about everything, just some everything going on right now in the industry. But then uh, I read a piece in the New York Times yesterday about how Wall Street is really bullish on home builders right now, um, you know, kind of go where the puck is going and not where it is currently figuring that, uh, hey, we've got a major 
housing uh, inventory issue in America. There's only one way to get out of it. To your point, it's going to take a little while, but it's build your way out, right? So uh, follow the money, one of my favorite sayings. And uh, we're seeing Wall Street money start to go into the home builders. That's a good sign for our industry, no? Yeah, well, because I think what people don't realize is it took us a while to get into this mess. Uh, 1930 to 1939, uh, 5.4 million homes were built. Uh, 2010 to 2019, 5.9 million homes were built. While the population is goes from 123 million to 332 million. Therefore, it's tough to, I mean, look, if we fix it in two years, we're phenomenal. Because even if we dealt with it this year, it took us, 10 years to drastically underbuild to really lead to this headache for that in two or three years, it gets relieved. I mean, I consider that a win because the average, if you look at it every decade, it was 20 million. Now I know what the argument is. Well, we overbuilt from demographic standpoint, the late 2000s. Okay. What do we overbuild by five, 10 million? Even if say they'd bit 10 million homes in 2010 to 2019. 8 million, not a whole lot more per year. We wouldn't have as many challenges as we had. And we'd probably have a little bit more affordability because it's really, uh, all demand is really generated by supply. You know, you have too much supply, not enough demand. It, it really goes by what the supply is. That's really what dictates almost the demand outside of the behavioral economics that factor in. Fascinating statistic. That was get the 1930 to 1939, 2010 to 2019, same number of homes built in America. 500,000 more, but three times more people almost in America 80 years later. So 200 and it's like 210 million more people. And you've got to think about that. That was during the Great Depression. So, and I know that that followed obviously the Great Recession. So that's why there's a lot of parallels there. But just naturally, a lot of, you know, the Great Depression was far worse than the Great Recession, even though that was very painful and we lived through it. The recovery was, you know, about a three to five year period. That one took over 10. So the recovery was faster. However, I mean, I remember there, I mean, there was there was no builders for a few years that pretty much existed outside of the really, really big players. And they just weren't building a crazy amount because there was so much inventory at that point from foreclosures. So not till that got eaten up, did they get back to building? And then the birth rate had skyrocketed so much in the late eighties, early nineties, uh, gen Y versus gen X. Um, that's the other thing that really led to the crash in 06, 07 is gen X by percentage and number was like almost smaller than a generation, almost a hundred years before. Hard to think. That was 16 years ago now. It's crazy to think it was that. Well, I remember being a youngish secondary guy and being terrified, <laughs> quite frankly. <laughs> that, that, wasn't, that wasn't fun times. I'll say that much. I remember I was like, you know, my late 20s. And I remember just thinking to myself, like, man, the bank has got really too much confidence in me. This is crazy what's going on right now. <laughs> Well, I, I think at that point, that's before so much of the technical data and analysis was available and analytics that, and that's before data became cool. Yeah. Social media helped become make data cool. This is the last week in mortgage today. Uh, Rich Swarbinski this week joined by the CEO of Equity Prime Mortgage, uh, Eddie Perez. 
Eddie uh, Wells Fargo making some news last week saying they're taking their foot off the gas pedal. Let's some to speculate they could be pulling out a correspondent lending. Uh, Wells filled a huge void in our industry on the back end of the aforementioned meltdown. A lot of players flamed out and uh, made the wrong choice as well as kind of came into the void and rose to 33, 34% market share in the, the years that followed the meltdown. Really tough just to be a big bank in mortgage lending, the regulation and just the, you know, the, all the moving parts to it. Um, many speculated wells would be getting out of correspondent, but no, we they've confirmed with us that they're staying in it. But I think it points, uh, uh, speaks to the broader uh, market right now. It's uh, to your point, we got a reset. Um, and other great perspective you added earlier in the show. You know, we're on track to do a little over two trillion this year's in industry. A few, I don't really, like three or four years, we're like a trillion, six trillion, seven, I want to say, you know, in that in that period. But so it feels worse now. But the market got flooded. And now it's causing some people to pull out. Um, your thoughts on that side of it, kind of like the third party, the correspondent, the investor side of it. Do you do you anticipate um further consolidation and M&A there? Do you feel like that's already happened? What, what do you see for like that side of our industry? Are you talking about the aggregators or what part exactly? The aggregators, vendors, the, the companies that you and our other members need to execute their business on a daily basis, if it's takeouts in the secondary market or technology vendors, how much consolidation do you think we'll see uh, continuing consolidation going forward? And I, think, in- I think we'll have, we'll see a healthy amount. Now who that is, I don't know, you know, margins have to come into play. Are margins going to be sustainable enough? You know, there's plenty of times in this industry that people are okay not making money for a year or two, but not for three or four years, because eventually either their third parties start asking a lot of questions and questioning them, or their shareholders or their banks are wondering, was this really a good investment? Should I put my capital somewhere else? Which is a very fair statement. However, as anything... That's just an opportunity for for new people to rise. And I do believe right now is a changing of the guard that we saw in 06 and 07. If you remember, almost eerily identical. And then I talked to somebody from 91, 92. About every 14, 15, 16, 17 years, somewhere in that time frame, there really is a shift. The people that got in the business in their 20s, early 30s, depending on when the pigeon swung, then now that they're in their, you know, I'll say 38 to mid early fifties, that's like the next generation of leaders that really take over. And then the other ones start to retire and you're starting to see it. I'm starting to see so many more retirements, retirements, because now, you know, they had a great run. It always, everybody always explains they have a great run, then it gets really tough. And then people said, you know what? I've been in this industry 30 years, 35 years, you know, it's time for me to ride off into the sunset. And I think you're going to see a lot of that because why wouldn't you? It's no different than an athlete after great runs. It's it's completely okay in sports, but in the business, people are like, what's wrong with you? Do you plan on passing away? No, not at all. It's just, I plan on doing more with my life or other things. And you're starting to see that. So I think it's a changing of the guard. I think it's going to be different. Uh, just like the one in 08 was different. 07 was different. Because I'm sure there's some people out there listening that have no idea who Angelo Mazzillo is, even though he was pretty much the star before the last one. So that's just like anything in history. Like you, you have your great runs, organizations move up and then other ones change speeds. You know, they have different initiatives, you know, maybe 
you know, I can't really comment on what Wells is doing, but maybe they're saying, hey, we're having so much success on the trading side, on the wealth management side, on other sides that are a lot more for better for our customer base. So we really need to pay more attention to that. I mean, you know, you got to go where your attention goes. What percent, if you just like pulled all the employees of all the member companies at TMC, like what percentage you think would know today who Angelo Mazzillo is? I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to say at least over 50%. I, I may be wrong, but. Yeah, maybe, but he was the guy 20 years ago. I was the biggest name in our industry. It just oh, goes, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's a. I mean, that's yeah. like Mount Rushmore. I yeah. mean, that's one of the legends of the game to take a small broker shop in California and to turn it into not only the number one lender in the country, but they also had a bank division, everything. I mean, they were, they were in everything. I mean, they had a credit vendor, uh, appraisal company. I mean, they, they were a conglomerate. They, they were the only ones to this date that have made a true conglomerate out of the real estate side, heavier on the finance side. But I mean, they, they were a mortgage lender. I know they had land safe. I know they had a title company. I know they had credit. They had a slew of products that really made them a conglomerate. And that's why they were able to become so powerful because they were so much, they had warehouse lines. I forgot about that too. Cause that's why they had the bank. Like they had so many. Um, and that's funny. Somebody just said that everybody's Googling Angelo Mazzillo. Bob's right. 50%. Maybe I'm going to go with 50. Cause yeah, you're, you're a hopeful guy. I was saying 35, 40, but right around there. I, but I, Mozilla, I, I, he spoke at, and American Pacific, one of our members, they brought him in. He spoke at like their sales rally. It was like three years ago. It was before the pandemic. I happened to get a copy of the video of it. It was like an hour speech and it was, it was real like cloak and dagger per his re- request. But it was, it was fascinating. It was a fascinating trip down memory lane of what you just painted. That, that was a machine man in the 80s. He built. And everybody there. And then look, it turned into more companies. And, you know, he passed away recently, but Stan Curlin then left and started Penny Mac and they've become huge too. So, and they're everywhere. You know, you saw that Amerihome people came from Countrywide. You've seen so many players that came from one side of it, warehouse, this, that. It's, I mean, they were everywhere, man. They, they had a very great philosophy that I can't believe anybody else hasn't duplicated saying, I'm not going to have any competitors, only competitors myself. I'm going to provide some service that somebody's going to touch. So in other words, all the competition are my friends. One way or another, they're doing business with us. I, I got to give my hat. I can't believe nobody else has thought about building out that structure only because, ah, I mean, you would become, and then you wouldn't have to force because that's what they were very good at. They didn't say, hey, you're doing business with me. You need to do business X, Y, Z. They said, hey, you're doing business with me and we'll say uh, uh, appraisals. Can I can I try to see if I can earn your credit? Hey, you're doing business with credit. Can I get some more loans? I know you're sending loans somewhere else. Hey, you're getting loans from us. Hey, can we can we possibly look at titles and maybe give you some benefits there? They were brilliant at at bringing the true I'll, uh, what what is so much a la carte in our industry? They were very good. You know, they had retail offices, they had wholesale, they had correspondent. Like they were brilliant. <laughs> and, and it's funny, really David hurt. said that the tan god. Yes, he did have quite the tan. And I don't know how true this is. 
They said he had a tanning bed in his office. I don't know how true that is, but I mean, that's... I would, I would bet the truth on that one. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he, he was in California. It's very sunny there. He could have just gone to the beach a lot. That's what I kind of always said. You just, you never know on those things. One of the greatest stories I've ever heard, and this is fascinating, diversion from our boring uh, news headlines and uh, going down memory lane, that one of the truly great companies uh, in our industry ever, I would agree. Uh, David Kittle, one of the TMC co-founders, uh, was president of MBA in 07. And the story is, David, when all the shit went down at Countrywide and, you know, and, you know, the pre-meltdown, you know, everything started to bubble up, he had to go into angelo's office as the rep of mba and tell them that like mba was essentially revoking their membership <laughs> and it is the best story ever about just the feet you know david going into that like it was it's just next time a lot of people know who david kill is next time you see him ask for the the angelo mozilla 07 uh, story so <laughs> yeah no uh i've heard that one it's it's legendary i mean that just uh because there's also i forgot what he said Something I want to say, because back then the because uh, they visited because I, I believe Angelo at some point in time was NBA chairman. I think so. Yeah. Something of that. Oh. I think he was anyway, like he had to go like visit. I think it was like Oklahoma and he went to a Native American and they like gave him a headset and he had to go like turn that in. That's part of the story. I'm, I'm probably butchering it, but oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I know. You're there's talking. something wild about that story where it really hit home when he did that because like the day that Dave, um, David Kittle had to show up, he was also having to give that up and he didn't know. So like anybody, because like I say, um, Angel built that place from a broker shop in California to become the most powerful lender and independent mortgage banker. And really so many people owe a debt of gratitude for the road he paved because that's why independent mortgage bankers today have 70% of the market when it comes to purchase market and is leading so many ways because he did lead it. And he really was a trailblazer way ahead of everybody's time. Words of wisdom. I would agree. And that is coming from the CEO of a highly successful IMB talking about uh, a guy that inspired him and helped blaze trail, ruffle some feathers along the way, but Hey, what, what great leaders don't really. And he built a great company. It was, you know, kind of a crazy ending, but it was a crazy time in America. And uh, you know, I think probably more a byproduct of that and other things than, than, you know, business flaws, but fascinating trip down memory lane, Eddie, always enjoy uh, having you on the show. And uh, anytime that uh, we have you in front of our members and appreciate you answering the bell again this week. No problem. I always enjoy uh, and you're you're welcome, Jen, for the the history lesson and perspective. And anybody out there, I, I have a huge passion for this industry. It's a lot of fun to me, as crazy as that sounds. Uh, but you have to be crazy. Everybody's got to lean into their crazy because if you don't love it, you're not going to be able to win and really accomplish your your life fulfillment and goals. And I think what we do for the consumer is is so phenomenal that as an industry, we have to keep collaborating and working together, uh, just because I believe it's in the best interest to really keep the consumers going back to their homes. And as an industry, it's great because even as you talk about the MBA, they also handle the commercial side as well. So even people that are multifamily residences, investors, hotels, apartments, you know, we get to touch, you know, we're about the only industry that one way or another touches every American every day. And I think that that gives a lot of great perspective as well as fulfillment, knowing what you're doing for your fellow man. 
Very well said, Eddie. And uh, again, really, really appreciate you joining us this week and uh, sharing your insight and expertise with our audience uh, live here, uh, our podcast listeners. Man, this is why I join our live broadcast Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, great one this week. Um, and to those of you that join live, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast where most of you listen, TMC Connect, uh, what, what you want to search uh, anywhere you get your podcast. So till next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, have a great rest of the week, everyone. And thanks again, Eddie. Take care. Bud. <clears throat> For more information about how you can get involved with TMC Connect and witness the power of the network firsthand, please visit us at mortgagecollaborative.com.